0: This is Save the Nation on ADH TV, and I'm David Flint. And uh, it is my honor today to have Adam Crichton, who is the distinguished correspondent of The Australian in Washington, DC, a very uh, well-known position. Uh, Adam was educated at uh, the University of New South Wales and Oxford University, and he was journalist in residence in the University of Chicago. He writes widely in books in The Economist in The Wall Street Journal. He's held positions with the Reserve Bank, APRA, and he was advisor, economic advisor, to the then leader of the opposition, Tony Herbert. So it's a very distinguished background. Adam, will you be watching the coronation?
1: Difference, but yes, I will be seeing some of it. I think it will be the morning here for me
0: right. in
1: Washington. Uh, Yes.
0: It's comfortably the evening, Saturday evening in Sydney, so it's the ideal time to be watching television. You've yes. been, Adam, you've been critical of the authoritarianism which prevailed at the height of COVID. Do you think it could have been avoided?
1: Look, it's a, it's a difficult question. I think the whole, that whole three years was, a, was an insight really into our collective psyche and how as a civilization we panicked massively. And I don't think it really mattered what the constitutional arrangements were, by and large, whether you had a US-style system with a bill of rights or, a, or an Australian-Canadian-style system where there's no bill of rights and just just statute law or common law. I think you saw more or less the same responses across those jurisdictions, uh, and those responses, in my view, were were insane. I think I, you know, I don't think. I don't think that's too extreme an adjective to use to describe what happened. Certainly, none of the lockdowns, none of the mandates uh, passed any any sort of uh, cost benefit analysis that would have made any rational sense uh, based on what we knew in March and April
0: 2020.
1: Well, and I, yet we as a society pursued those,
0: those agree policies which
1: were incredibly
0: Yeah, I agree with you. I, I do think though that if, uh, we'd had proper surveillance if that had been allowed, for example, in New South Wales by the upper house. And they cleverly avoided that. And we had ministers making, making regulations mm-hmm. in the middle of the night. For example, we had one regulation yes. which closed down <clears throat> the building industry for two weeks. And the chief medical yes. officer said she didn't advise it. We had all sorts of uh, unorthodox methods. And I think if that were tightened up, there would be an advantage. There needs to be a Royal Commission, but when I was asked about that by a, a, a Labor advisor, I said, well, it really depends on whom you appoint. You've got to appoint the right person. Of course. I'd say you'd appoint three I good mean, judges. I
1: mean, my fear is that it's still too early to have a review like that, because what will inevitably happen is the response will essentially be whitewashed, I would say, uh, because most of the people who would be appointed or could be appointed would probably have supported the measures at the time, mm. whether on social media or privately, and so <clears throat> they'd be they'd feel compelled to to support uh, what we did. I mean, of course, there'd be some criticism around the edges, but I think by and large, uh, the overall thrust of what we did would be supported. And so I think we still need a few years to go by until the current generation of decision makers has moved on, and and there's less fear of criticising the government and and all of the all the academics and, and so-called experts who uh, who supported those policies—probably
0: wise words. Uh, it would be terrible to have a royal commission and just be a whitewash of the whole thing. Exactly. Oh, on another matter, I I see you. I I think you agree that our superannuation is the envy of the world.
1: I think it's the opposite of that. I mean, certainly our superannuation industry loves to tell us that it's the envy of the world. And, of course, for them, it's it's a magnificent system. I mean, it ensures, you know, billions of dollars of workers' wages flow into funds by law, by mandate, every every three months. Uh, that's certainly the envy of the funds management industry throughout the world. No other country has a system like that. Uh, but from the public point of view, public interest point of view, uh, you know, it's a disastrous policy, and sadly, though, it's it's one Australia is well and truly stuck with. I mean, we've seen successive coalition governments too scared to take it on, even though philosophically, deep down, they know full well all the problems with it. Uh, I mean, was it the... <clears throat> I mean, the Turnbull government, I think, tried to rein it in slightly. Certainly Tony Abbott um, took a dim view of superannuation, but as Prime Minister, he did very little to rein it in. I mean, he did... He did commendably uh, delay from memory the increase in the superannuation guarantee. And I think it's currently up near 10% or maybe higher than that. Uh, But nevertheless, it was just a delay. And, you know, the onward march continues to 12%. And the reality is that just impoverishes uh, uh, workers and families, you know, during the time of their life when they need their income the most. And and it, you know, puts it into funds that they don't understand and, and they have little control over and that are just ripe for, uh, you know, ripe for gouging by the funds management sector. And of course, as you know, some of that that funding finds its way into the union movement, uh, which empowers the uh, left side of politics in Australia. And it's that side of politics, which is particularly uh, devoted to compulsory superannuation, uh, purely out of self-interest.
0: Well, if any of our readers are interested further in this, uh, uh, you wrote an excellent piece, which people can look up in the Australian, which set out the advantages of some of the American uh, systems. And there's a great choice there and there are things that you can do which you can't do in Australia. I think it's a great pity, isn't it, that uh, the opposition doesn't do something when when Labour introduces something which is just not working. Uh, yes. When the coalition gets in, they keep it, or they, they're they not successful in getting rid of it, the latest being the NDIS, which desperately needs Uh, reform and the opposition did nothing about it. The same with education. Education is going downhill, particularly, for example, in New South Wales, Uh in the measures of literacy and numeracy. Coalition was in for 10 years and they did nothing to fix that. They just left the system in place.
1: I mean, to be very cynical David, maybe that's a feature rather than a bug of the system that the quality of education is declining because it means the population is less able to discern stupid policies from sensible policies. Uh, I mean, yeah, that's a very cynical statement, but I mean, I've become a lot more cynical in the past few years. Uh, the standards are declining in the US as well. And some of the blame for that has to be with the public sector unions and and the various, uh, you know, the, sorry, the public sector teachers unions, I should say, to be more specific. Uh, But the broader problem is, we live in a society where people's attention spans are shrinking all the time and it makes it very hard to make a sophisticated uh, case to the public. I mean, we know throughout history that arguments from the left, they always appeal to emotion and that's what affects most people and sways their decision. Uh, You know, to understand that something like the NDIS, for instance, is not a good policy, requires a bit of thought <laughs> yes. of more than, you know, 30 seconds. And sadly, you know, not many people have that time or
0: inclination. Yes. It, on another matter, do you think Beijing is seriously worried by AUKUS? Oh, look, no,
1: I don't think so. And, you know, frankly, i it's still too far away to know whether we'll get the submarines. I certainly hope we do, but, I mean, I think we have to be realistic. and. Uh, you know, the 2030s is still a long way away. And there's a number of administrations in the US during that time, a number of governments in Australia and the UK that will pass. I mean, it only takes one of those governments or administrations to change their mind, and it it won't happen. So, I mean, I think it's a good deal. I'm glad we did it. We have no choice, really, because we've kind of jettisoned everything else. Um, But I think Beijing... I mean, if you just look at the raw numbers of submarines, it's not, it's not really uh, changing the equation very much. Uh, but I think it's important Australia does have its, its own fleet of submarines. Uh, it's just a shame that we have to wait, what, seven years or eight years before we get the first of the next, uh, next generation.
0: <clears throat> just on that uh, in relation to Beijing, why do you think Western governments are so naive in their relations with Beijing, you can go back to the Clinton administration, letting mm. Beijing into the World Trade Organization. Our mm. our free trade agreement, which was shredded when it suited Beijing, when they imposed all those yes. outrageous uh, restrictions on our trade. Why are Western politicians so naive as to actually believe these thugs, these communist thugs who <clears> run the regime? In, Beijing, and of course, not at all interested in questions of uh, yes. honour and duty.
1: Well, I think it's because most Western governments, in the U.S., you know, in, in the 1990s and the in the early 2000s, uh, believed uh, the economic orthodoxy, and uh, that that basically said the more, you know, the more wealth countries had, the more likely they would be to become uh, democracies. And and I think there was a belief that by trading with China and by allowing it to grow, that, that it, would, it would move in the direction of a, of a more US-like system. But certainly, it's, you know, that hasn't happened. Indeed, it's probably moved in the other direction, you could say, since the 90s and 2000s. It's become more authoritarian and more totalitarian. So I think it's been a hard lesson for all of us <clears throat> that just because a nation is very wealthy does not mean it's going to become a liberal democracy. And I think, sadly, to be honest, if I can be very cynical again, <clears throat> I think, if anything, we're becoming slightly more like China. It's going the other way. And the reason for that is that, you know, in order to fight, to to compete with China, uh, we have to have greater controls in the West over what people can say and think. And you saw that throughout COVID in the US, where there was a connection between the US government and the social uh, tech companies to censor people who disagreed with the US government. I mean, that's quite shocking, but it happened on a large scale. And, I mean, of course, that's only you yeah, know, that's a very small version, if you like, of, of what happens in China. But nevertheless, it's a move in that uh, in the same direction. So that does w- worry me a bit, I must say.
0: It's having experienced it myself, having something taken down from social media platforms, yes. because I've dared to mention some of the medicines which are popular in some parts, popular in some parts of the world at the beginning of COVID. Of course. Uh, it, it is extraordinary, a, extraordinary yeah. that we have that. I used to think uh, that it was touch and go as to where the Westminster was better than the American system. You're mm-hmm. living there under the American system. There seem to be some extraordinary anomalies there. For example, okay. the the president seems to completely ignore the law in relation to immigration, in relation to the southern border. He's doing, <laughs> and, and when it came to bailing out banks, he seemed to be doing that without congressional approval. He's doing things in relation to the law which Stuart King's in our system, one lost uh, his throne, one lost his head for doing this sort of thing, yet the the presidency seems to operate in this way. Do you think that, that Westminster is better than the Washington system?
1: Look, it's a very good question. Um, it's something I've thought about a little. Uh, I mean, certainly, I like the formality of the U.S. system. Obviously, it's far—it's all kind of laid down in rules and the constitution how it works. I like the separation of the government and the parliament, which, of course, we don't have in Australia. It's essentially the same thing because all the ministers have to sit in the parliament. Uh, I think it's great in the U.S. how there is a Congress which, which you know, does criticise the government quite often, especially when the opposition party is in power. Of course and sometimes threatens the government with uh, you know, a choking off the money supply and so forth. We're seeing a bit of that now with the so-called you know, the, the so-called debt ceiling debate. I think that's a strength, but a weakness of the US system is it's very hard to get anything done uh, for that same reason, because it's rare that, that the one party controls the Congress and the White House. And even when that's the case, it's still very hard to get things through the Senate because the, uh, party discipline is much, much less here than in Australia, uh, so quite often the Senate won't agree with the government, even if, if the same party is in control. Um, I mean, it's hard to compare, because the US, you know, the US is really an empire, of, you know, 330 million people. It's, it's so large, whereas Britain and Australia are much, much smaller. Uh, so, so maybe, you know, I think, I think perhaps in, in, in smaller nations it makes sense to have a more nimble system, and I think that's, that's what we have in Australia. Uh, I think it's easier to get things done. Um, and i don't know about the cost aspect but you know maybe it's cheaper too
0: the uh, the american federal system works better than the australian federal system the australian federal system is probably now the worst <coughs> in the democratic world in that
1: i think that's true
0: yeah uh, i and, think that's true and the, the commonwealth takes something over 80% of the taxation yes yes in the country <coughs> that happens in no other in no other yes, federation in the well, federations can really only truly exist in the democratic world. Uh, the Soviet Union yes. used to be a federation, <laughs> but yeah. it was a front of yes. the federation. There was no federation yes. there. Yes, it was Stalin right. and the and, uh, and the Politburo. Yeah, I
1: think I think uh, yeah, the U.S. probably has, I mean, I think Switzerland has a good federation oh, as well. Yeah. Although I'm not an expert, but I think, but I think, I think they're they're fairly independent. The various cantons, but uh, but certainly in the U.S., the states are a lot more independent. They they run their show. Uh, much more without the influence of Washington. They raise their own taxes quite often. They impose their own income taxes, as you know, so they're much more independent. And I think the COVID uh, pandemic, I mean, as, as much as I said earlier that the constitutional setup did not matter, it did to some extent. I mean, if you zoom in on various states in the US, the responses were were completely different. and And that was only uh, possible because the states are not beholden to Washington in the same way that our states are beholden to Canberra. And so you did have states like Florida and Texas and Georgia uh, pursuing a completely different uh, response to COVID, which of course turned out to be far superior. Uh, and, and so you can have this experiment, you can have this kind of a laboratory, if you like, uh, where different policies can be tested. And that's a virtue, whereas in the, you know, well, effectively Australia is is almost a centralized system in practice now, even though we have different jurisdictions, the states all basically do the same thing. They all follow what what Canberra says, whether it's education or whatever, it's all standardized now. Uh, so it's much more like, I suppose, the UK or France or Germany in that sense, where, where everything's very centralized. <clears throat> and so if you get the policy wrong in Australia, that's a disaster because you don't really know that you're doing the wrong thing, at least in the US, um, perhaps, at least in theory, it's more, uh, it's more readily able to be seen when, when a state is, is doing the wrong thing.
0: It's one, of the, one of the breakdowns in Australia, I think results from the fact that it's the Commonwealth, it's Canberra who appoints the High Court judges. And they tend to yes, appoint yes. judges who are centralists. They're from the Sydney and Melbourne bars. They know nothing else. They know nothing about the other states. And uh, you, you get uh, judges who decide things not according to the original intention. And I, I want to ask you a question yes. about the uh, American Supreme Court. There are no originalists. There's no Scalia. There's no, there's no uh, Justice no. Thomas mm-hmm. on, uh, on our high court. They, they all have theories about interpretation, but nothing relates to the original intention. So they've allowed they've allowed the Commonwealth to stick its nose into state matters, and it obviously can't to the federal duties that it has, for example, defence. So we really get a very mm-hmm. yes. bad system here, I think, in Australia, and I think the American yeah, system—the American system—is better than that. Uh, I saw uh, you have the ability of writing comments in the Australian, which surprise your readers. For example, some time ago when you allowed the possibility of uh, Donald Trump coming back, this was before it was generally accepted that he would and he had that possibility of winning. I think you were were more open about that than most other writers. I saw him the other night, he was being interviewed by Mark Levin. I don't know if you saw that, Mm -hmm. but I thought he came across very well and very persuasively and uh, he's obviously in far better health than the present president.
1: But yes, that's very no, he, he
0: reflected on his foreign policy. And I think his foreign policy was very good. He did seem to achieve. He didn't get involved in any wars. And he also reflected on his domestic policy, particularly making America energy independent. Do you, do you, did you see that? Uh, were you impressed? Uh, no, look, I didn't see that particular interview.
1: Um, uh, I missed it. I saw snippets of it, but but, but certainly his mental ability is far greater than Joe Biden's. That's that's very clear. Uh, he's still very sharp, and I think I think the interesting point here is that in in October and November he was completely written off. Basically, uh, his chances were written off. He was mocked for running uh, for the nomination. Everyone was basically saying it it was going to be Ron DeSantis, and then very quickly as as, as we moved into the new year, the polls. Moved very quickly in his direction, and I think I think the media was slow to pick up on that. And I, and I think the, I think I think the reason is because they didn't want it to be true. At least most of the media did not want it to be true. I think it's only been realised in the past couple of months that, I mean, he currently at least has a you know has a gridlock on on that nomination. Whether you look at the polls, all the all the betting markets, uh, you know, I mean, he's he's double digit points ahead of Ron DeSantis. Uh, whose popularity has been falling. So, I mean, he's an extraordinarily good politician. You have to give him that. Uh, I mean, he's a bulldozer. He's a political bulldozer. Um, And we're seeing the same thing again now. We're seeing people say, oh, yes, but, you know, he definitely can't win the election in 24. Well, that's just obviously not true. I mean, he certainly could win the election in 24. And, you know, you'd have to say it's at least 30% chance, and 30% is a lot. (laughs) Um, And I would say if there's a recession uh, next year a bad recession which is quite possible given the uh, sec- the series of rapid in- interest rate increases then the timing could suit him very well uh i mean because as we know when there's a recession people vote against the incumbent and if that's the case they he may well win and then of course now you've got this this other factor of robert f kennedy running uh on the democrat side which i think could cause enormous damage to biden because uh, Kennedy is already polling 20% amongst Democrats, and he's barely even started the campaign. Uh, that's very embarrassing for Biden, and I assume that that's gonna go up to a third of Democrats. And it, you know, it's, of course, highly unlikely that he'll win the nomination, Kennedy, because he'll have the whole democratic apparatus against him, uh, but if he then decides to run as an independent, I mean, which which he may well, I mean, you know, he's a wealthy man, uh, he has a lot of support, he's got a famous surname, you know, you could have the situation in twenty four where you know you have kind of a Ross Perot situation where there's this third party candidate who steals a lot of votes from uh, the Democrat president, or of course in the past it was from george h. Uh, george H. Bush. but um, and you have the Republicans win, and it could be trump. <clears throat> so So I think a Democrat should be very concerned uh, kind of about the lay of the land at the moment politically.
0: Do you see great value in the American system of primaries compared with uh, what we have in Australia?
1: Yes. Look, I mean, again, it's 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 a much bigger country, so I think it's you know it's probably easier to do that. I mean, I, I don't know if that's necessarily fair, but I mean, I you know I like them, and I think Australian, I think the candidates in Australia, certainly on the Labor side, but also on the Liberal side, are kind of chosen by too few people. I, I mean, exactly. there have been attempts over the years in the Liberal Party to to democratise it. But my understanding is they they didn't get very far those those reform movements, uh, which is a shame. Um, and so yes, yeah, so so I think there is you know virtue in that in that primary process. It also makes it easier for for successful people later in their career to enter politics in the U.S. Whereas it's much harder in Australia if you haven't built those kind of insider networks hmm. uh, which are so crucial hmm. in Australia for winning pre-selection. Yes. So you end up with staffers and so forth staying there their entire lives and then being pre-selected and they've really done nothing else except be a political staffer.
0: I must re- say that in 2016 I, I thought that Ted Cruz was the best Republican candidate. I was very impressed by <laughs> him, particularly by what he said, but uh, once once Trump won and then I saw his, uh, his address, I shouldn't say address, his speech in Gettysburg <laughs> and what his agenda was, I thought, well, that's a very good agenda. And if he achieves a good part of that, that will be a good presidency. The system seems to produce a good president every so often. And I think you really a really great president. You really have to go back to Reagan as, as a truly great president in uh, recent yes. American history.
1: Yeah, look, I think that's I think that's fair. Um I mean Trump, I think if you kind of, you know, take away his name from the equation and just and just look at the statistics of that 2016 to 20 period, as you suggest, it was quite a good period in American history. I mean, the economy was was very strong until COVID hit. Uh foreign policy, I agree with you. There were no new wars. Uh the world was relatively peaceful. In the US, uh there were tax cuts, uh and the economy boomed, but the problem is, a large minority of Americans really hate Donald Trump very much, um, and I think that's a problem. I mean, even if you like Donald Trump or, or appreciate his presidency, I think the fact that he's so loathed is a is a problem, uh, because even if he won again, there'd be civil unrest, and and it would make governing the country difficult. I think. Uh, but but that said, he yeah, I mean, he may win again. Uh, But I do worry that if he does, it'll be a very volatile period in US history. I
0: know Mm -hmm. some people in Sydney and you just have to just say Donald Trump and they shake with rage, inexplicable rage. He does seem to create that. But I remember that used to happen sometimes Mm -hmm. with Tony Abbott. People reacted
1: irrationally to the
0: name Tony Abbott. Uh, One of the... One of the questions is how clean will the election be? And I know that uh, it's very difficult to prove fraud, but I thought the case that Texas brought to the Supreme Court with, I think, 17 other attorneys, it was it was knocked out, I think, because the judges were too frightened to handle it because they, their, their own lives were yes. in threat. And we had Schumer making well, that threat on the steps of the court. But that case that Texas brought was, was uh, uh, they call it in America the independent state legislature theory. Well, it's not really a theory, it's there in the constitution. It's for the legislature of each state to control and make the electoral law. And you've had all sorts of people changing state laws, quite often to advantage the Democrats, particularly for ballot harvesting. Has that been cleaned up to a reasonable degree, do you think? That the well, the, I mean, the of course ease there of payments. ballot harvesting, for example, which, I mean, you just go, have somebody go <coughs> around to the immigrants and uh, tell them they're from the government or they're from the authorities, they're here to help by collecting the electoral ballots.
1: Yes, well, my understanding is that many of the larger Republican states have, have changed their rules since 2020, uh, most famously Georgia, that, 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 uh, that endured the greatest criticism on that front. Uh, but certainly there will be much, much more focus on the integrity of the 2024 election than there was on the 2020 election at the mm-hmm. time because we won't, we hopefully won't have a pandemic in 2024. So many of those rules, those temporary rules won't won't be there, <clears throat> as I understand it, mm-hmm. so there'll be more in-person voting. Uh, there won't be as much harvesting of that, of that sort. Um, and I just think on both sides you're going to have a real... On both sides of politics, there will be extraordinary scrutiny of the process, and so I think I think automatically you're going to get a better outcome in 2024 in terms of the fairness of the election. I mean, it wasn't just the structure of the laws; it's the fact that in 2020 uh, there was a huge amount of money from uh, Mark Zuckerberg uh, from Facebook went into so-called integrity measures, uh, and it's pretty clear from reading Molly, Molly Hemingway's book that. You know, that money was largely used to to garner votes for the Democrats, mm. uh, which, you know, you could argue is is interference with the election. Uh, I don't think that sort of thing's gonna happen again. Uh, people are not as naive and people will call things out more readily. Uh, but broader point here is that you know, the elections here are run really badly. I mean, um, <clears throat> it's much easier to cheat in the US than it is in Australia, say, or or France or you know, other countries. Uh, there's many states don't require ID. Uh, you can vote for something like four weeks up to the election, you know, which would not be allowed in Australia, I don't think. And of course, they have these these voting boxes, which, as far as I understand, we do not have in Australia at all, where you can just go to the street and just pop your vote in. Um, as far as I know, that's that's not legal in Australia. I mean, you can only vote at a polling booth, uh, and that that should be the case here. Um, and it's quite funny when when Georgia was was uh, reforming its rules in 21, and of course was being attacked by the Democrats as you know reintroducing Jim Crow uh, rules. I mean, the reality is that Georgia, even after those reforms, in many respects is still more lax than New South Wales. So I think I wrote a column at the time saying, well, is you know is New South Wales practicing Jim Crow? Election laws. I mean, of course, it's of course it's not right, but it's uh, it's just a much stricter, better system. Mm. And I think I think you know, all U.S. states should move in that direction. And, and if, if if Democrat politicians had you know had principles and, and, and thought more long term, they would also support such measures because if there's doubt about election outcomes, it can only you know foment ongoing division in the U.S.
0: Yes. Not that uh, ours is so pure. I can vote in my electorate. In about forty different places, without producing any identification, it's very yes. easy to get onto the roll. As we, uh, John Howard, tried to stop that by calling by closing the rolls on the day the election was called, and the High Court uh, very strangely uh, dropped a decision. They they rushed through the hearing. Really, uh, this is, yes, uh, and they they came to a decision that it was unconstitutional. For the Parliament to close, to pass laws to close the rolls on the day the election was called, it's very hard to find no. anything in the Constitution to that effect. They didn't release the decision. That was a, they 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 announced the decision, but they didn't release the judgments until just before Christmas, well after the election. And we saw there was a four-three decision. It's very hard to find any justification. For coming to that conclusion, but once that happened, get up, get up, uh, uh, brag that they'd got a hundred thousand extra people onto the rolls. Because what happens between the calling of the election in Australia and the closing of the rolls is a tsunami of enrollments. So it's very easy to enrol. All you've got to do is you put in. You put in your registration number, of your, your license number, you put in any number, of course, and you si- have it signed yes. in front of another elector, and that's not checked, so you could put anything in that. So it's possible to... Yeah, well. it, it's an invitation to fraud, I think, and without identification. It's, we don't have identification, as you say, but I, I used to think that it was a good idea in America to leave the running of elections to the states, to decentralise it, on the basis that some states will do it well, some states will do it badly. Yes. Instead of the whole Commonwealth doing it badly, but uh, they certainly yes. showed how to how to run a, an election badly last time. And I'm not saying I'm not giving yes, any well, support to the to the case brought against uh, uh, you know the case about the machines. That's a different question.
1: Oh yes, yes, yes. Look, the machines case. I mean, that was always very silly. I thought uh, it certainly wouldn't have been in that business's interest to conduct fraudulent elections, it it would have ceased to exist. Um, But but that's, you know, I think the, I mean, there's always fraud in every election. It's just a matter of quantity, right? There's always going to be some fraud. And as you say earlier, uh, it's very hard to prove. I mean, we know, you know, you're a esteemed lawyer. I mean, (laughs) I don't know what fraction of crimes are proven in court, but I would suggest it would be a very small percentage that are ultimately proven in a court.
0: Uh, So the vast,
1: Yes, yes, that's right. So, so simply saying that it was never proven in an American court that there was fraud does does not does not imply there was no fraud. Oh. I mean, that's just a silly argument, right? Um, so, so it's just a matter of the extent and whether it's provable. And I just hope that in this next election now, that's been a wake up to the various state legislatures and in particular the Republicans. I mean, historically, I would say that it's the left side of politics that are much better at organising than the right. I think that's just a fact uh, through the various union yes. movements. And uh, and I would hope that the right side of politics is more alert now to that sort of behaviour and is, is trying to stomp it out because I don't really think it's in anyone's interest, uh, long term, Australia or the US, to for people to have doubt in the outcome of their
0: elections. Yes. And I, I thought that Texas had a watertight case. Texas and the 17 states that supported <coughs> it. But it was knocked out. Yes. On the, I think, the spurious grounds that Texas didn't have standing. Well, whenever judges don't want to hear a case, they can always say, well, you don't have standing to, to make this yes, point. Yes, exactly. I, I, exactly. I thought it was a bit. Just uh, before you go, I'd like to ask you one question, mm-hmm. and that's about one of the justices, black justice of the mm-hmm. Supreme Court, Clarence Thomas, when he was they, they, in these awful uh, hearings that they have, in the Senate. I remember when he was being when he was appointed, they brought out this argument that he had sexually assaulted, harassed yes. a, a person working for him, Anita Hill. And I remember yes that's dur- right. during the during the case it became quite clear that whenever he changed his job, Miss Hill followed him to that job, whenever he changed it, and Anita Hill followed him. So if he were harassing her, she <laughs> apparently seemed to like it. But that was the big thing, and it was presented yes. as if it, were, if it were a proven fact. And of course, it wasn't. But now they're out to get Clarence Thomas. There's a major campaign against him, and they uh, are yes. And uh, I, 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 and the basis is that uh, he's been receiving favours from a man, trips particularly. Trips in a private plane well, <laughs> and so on, but uh, Ted uh, Ted Cruz produced a list of judges. It's interesting to go and hear it, and uh, he found that Ruth, Bayer Ginsburg, Justice Breyer, Justice Kagan, Justice mm-hmm. Romero, they they all had as many trips and sometimes more trips propor- proportionately <laughs> certainly more trips yes, than he's ever had.
1: Yes. It's just absurd. I mean, it really is embarrassing. He's done nothing wrong, nothing illegal. I don't see how any of these trips would affect uh, his decision making on the court anyway, which is largely dealing with very abstract legal issues. Uh, you know, I, so I. Um, but you know, they can't bring him down. He's a life appointee, so, and he's a pretty tough guy. Um, and isn't it just extraordinary that you know the left attacks this black man who, who's. Career is just extraordinary and should be celebrated. I mean, he, he came from poverty, uh, and he's a brilliant man who worked extremely hard and was originally a leftist. Actually, I think at university, yeah. um, and, w- and went to we all, all sorts old? of left wing protests. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes, that's right, that's right. And uh, I, I and now look impl- at him. I mean, he's you, <laughs> well. No, I still I still have my left wing moments. I'm still <laughs> young enough, David, to have a few left wing moments. <laughs> Maybe not for the rest, yes. rest of my life,
0: though. I think his sin is he's an originalist. He believes the Constitution means what yes. it what what it was generally yes. believed to originally mean. He doesn't follow the other school, which is the Constitution means what I say it means. Exactly. He's completely exactly. different from... And
1: the great disappointment is, you know, with the Roe v Wade case, is that it's seen by most people as a, a decision about abortion, right? It had nothing to do with abortion. The, the legal issue was whether or not this was a state responsibility or not. Yes. Uh, I mean, it really wasn't about abortion, per se. Mm. Uh, It was about states' rights. And I think the court made the right decision, certainly as a a non-lawyer reading the judgment, it made perfect sense to me that this right to an abortion was not in the
0: the Bill of Rights. (laughs) Yes, extraordinary that you could say that there's a constitutional right to abort when... Yes, it is extraordinary. I, I think the founding fathers would have been amazed had that ever I know, been told. I know. Him, and I think it?
1: even Ginsburg said, I think Ginsburg said herself, didn't she, you know, 20 yes. years ago, that the decision making, the, the legal reasoning behind Roe was was far from ideal. I mm. think something like that.
0: Yes. Well, uh, Adam, you've been very gracious with your time. I know you, you're very busy <laughs> yeah. there and you have to produce all sorts of things <laughs> so that we can understand what's happening in Australia. and. I must say, I and so many others do enjoy your columns and thank you so much for the contribution you make to Australia because there's, well, a, very much, there's a greater understanding there and uh, your column is closely followed by a number of Australians. So thank you very much and uh, I, I wish you well.
1: Thanks very much, David. It was a pleasure to speak, and I look forward to seeing you back in Sydney.
0: Good. And in conclusion, I'm David Flint, and this is Save the Nation on ADH-TV, and thank you very much for listening.